Hello and welcome to Civil War Weekly, the podcast that answers the question, what happened this week in the American Civil War? I'm your host, Tim Patrick, and this is episode 147, January 8th to January 14th, 1864. Last week, we spent the entire time reading and talking over a petition written by Patrick Claiborne, which also bore the names of several officers. Essentially, this petition was to arm enslaved individuals and have them partake in a more active role in the war. It's an interesting thing to suggest, although it would probably not have been possible. For one thing, it sort of takes away the point of the rebellion, even though it's a good argument. Some were fighting more for freedom and states' rights. Serious consideration to these efforts would not actually come to fruition until it was too late for the Confederacy. This week, we will discuss a preview of 1864, furthering a wrap of 1863 we had a while back. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about Thomas Rosser's raid into West Virginia. Of course, we do have some Patreon content coming out here. We talked a little bit about that last episode we're going to be doing of another movie review, but this one's a tad different. We're actually taking two movies, The Beguiled, and there's a Clint Eastwood version, and then there's a Colin Farrell version, and we're going to kind of compare and contrast those and talk about some of the themes that you see in those movies. So we are taking a little bit of a different approach. So if that sounds like something that would interest you, besides our other movie reviews, or memoir reviews, or even picture slideshows of modern-day battlefields, then by all means, there is a link to the Patreon in the show description, and those proceeds do go towards the general upkeep of the show. In late 1863 and early 1864, we will have the operations of Thomas Rosser against the Federals. Combining with John Singleton Mosby's operations, these will punctuate the early months as we get into the new year. Now, we have talked about Rosser before. He was a Virginia native who left the military academy before graduation due to secession. While he was there, he roomed with one George Armstrong Custer. He served under Stuart and was wounded actually at Kelly's Ford. You remember the same battle that killed the gallant Pelham. It could have been doubly catastrophic for the Confederacy had Rosser, another promising young officer, likewise have been killed. He would go on to serve in the East and launch a later war raid into West Virginia. After the war, he will go into railroads and actually serve as a general in the Army during the Spanish-American War, training volunteers. He will be considered the Savior of the Valley for his operations in the area as well as Western Virginia. Funnily enough, he had begun these operations earlier in 1864. We have several accounts from newspapers and Rosser himself who will describe the raiding. Now I'll say unfortunately everyone that it is hard for me to determine if the dates on some of these reports are just wrong or it is actually supposed to be 1865, which would burst the bubble for what's happening now and maybe they're actually connected to the more famous raid, but we're going to read through these anyway because the dates would line up as they are written with his actual rating in 64. Regardless of whether these reports are 
64 or 65, I think it does give us a pretty good idea of the kinds of operations and the kinds of reporting that you would see in newspapers during the war. So it is a good exercise for that too. So we have the Richmond Daily Dispatch, February 13, 1864, General Rosser's expedition into Hardy County. Hardy County is listed here as being in Virginia, but it is actually currently in West Virginia, a state that will become West Virginia here. A participant in the expedition of General Rosser into Hardy County, Virginia, on the 30th, furnishing the Rockingham Register with the particulars of the engagement by which the heavily captures were made. He says, On reaching the top of the mountain, we came into contact with the enemy's pickets, about 200 infantry. They, however, retired from this position with but little resistance. The mail here for miles was blockaded most securely, but the timber and obstructions soon gave way before our energetic and persevering pioneers. But while these obstructions were being removed, General Rosser dismounted Captain Steeple's squadron of the 12th Virginia Cavalry and continued the pursuit, followed by the mountain portion of the command. The Yankees, on reaching the second mountain, made another stand, where they were charged by the 12th, but as the enemy occupied the woods and heights, the charge was not successful. In this charge, we had one man killed and several wounded. Among the wounded was Major Buck, Brigade Postmaster. Captain Sipe was then ordered to the front with the sharpshooters, the enemy giving back. Thus, we continued the pursuit around and over the obstructions until we reached the Patterson's Creek and Petersburg grade. Just at this point, Lieutenant Baylor, who had been sent around on the flank, charged the enemy, but was repulsed with the loss of one man killed. Here, we were halted by the general, who came through with the sharpshooters on foot until the blockade could be removed so that the cavalry and artillery could come up, which they were not long in doing. When the whole command came up, all the sharpshooters in the brigade were then dismounted and moved forward down the grade towards Williamsport. And after marching two or three miles, we came upon the enemy numbering a thousand infantry who were drawn up in a line of battle in the rear of an immense wagon train, numbering 107. The dismounted sharpshooters were drawn up in battle order in front of the enemy's line, and the artillery put in position and opened upon them at short range, the shots of which were received with cheers and laughter, it not being effective. So just to kind of stop here and point out, at this point in the war, it's actually... Very different than probably 1864, right? These individuals, if you're being shot at, probably break and run. If it's 1861, you know, we talked about Philippi races, and that's not really a battle. It was just kind of, as we described, some shots, and then they end up running away. And here we have later in the war, these are now veteran troops, and they're not going to break and run easily. The column of about 300 sharpshooters under the command of Major Knott was moved forward amid a tremendous volley of musketry, but, fearless and undaunted, they moved on, dealing death and destruction to their foes, and soon they had the satisfaction of seeing the enemy's lines give way, and a moment later they were fleeing promiscuously in every direction. The battle was fought, the victory won, and the train was captured. It was a rich prize, nearly 100 wagons, well loaded with corn, oats, bacon, rice, flour, beans, sugar, coffee, 
molasses, pickled pork, clothing, blankets, and others were loaded with luxuries such as candy, raisins, cigars, tobacco, oysters, sardines, cakes, crackers, brandy peaches, cherries, and in short, everything nice and good. After the fight was over, General Rosser complimented the sharpshooters and said all the honor of the victory belonged to them, and also stated that he had participated in all the battles in which the Army of Northern Virginia was engaged, save one or two, when he was absent wounded, and that he had never seen anything to equal this engagement. 300 cavalry sharpshooters contending with and completely routing a thousand well-drilled infantry. 53 of these wagons with their contents were soon turned around and on their way to Dixie. 40 more were committed to the flames. So we see here we have the account of the engagement and it's a pretty well-detailed account here of what went on and the capture of these wagons and, and of course really any capture of supplies or wagons by the confederacy is going to be very important especially as their logistical problems and supply problems persist as the war draws on i think it's also interesting to point out it seemed like a kind of like a laundry list of items there and a soldier is probably more concerned with the types of things that they're getting out of such a nice score shall we say and we have other accounts Notably, I think, of Stonewall Jackson's men when they're able to maneuver around John Pope's army during the Second Manassas Campaign. There's a lot of accounts of them with all the things that they got and thinking that it's like Christmas with all the items. They all mention you know, the oysters, the candy, all these luxuries that obviously they were not getting in the South. So obviously, if you're the average soldier, that's probably more what you're focusing on you know, you, like I said, there's a brief description of the action, uh, but then we get into the good part. So here we have a report of General Robert E. Lee, and he is at Orange Courthouse here in February of 64. On the 30th, General Rosser captured a train of 93 wagons loaded with commissary stores and forage on way from New Creek to Petersburg. 300 mules, 20 prisoners. The guard of 800 infantry escaped to the mountains. Our loss, 25 killed and wounded. Information of the advance upon Petersburg having been received, the garrison evacuated it during the night. On the 2nd, Rosser destroyed the bridges over Patterson's Creek and North Branch of Potomac and Canal and captured 40 prisoners. 278 prisoners, 50 wagons and teams, 1,200 cattle, and 500 sheep have been bought off. General Rosser has shown great energy and skill, and his command deserves great credit. Here we continue with Jubal Early and his report. On January 28th, leaving in Bodum's and Walker's brigades near Mount Jackson to guard the valley, I moved from this place with Rosser's brigade. Thomas Brigade, all of the effective men of Gilmore and McNeil's partisan rangers, and four pieces of McClanahan's battery toward Moorfield in Hardy. I arrived at Moorfield with Rosser's brigade and the artillery on the 29th, and early next morning, Rosser was sent to intercept a train on its way from New Creek to Petersburg and get between the garrison at the latter place and the railroad, after cutting through a heavy blockade on the mountain between the South Branch and Parsons Creek, which was defended by a regiment, Rosser succeeded in reaching and capturing the train after a short fight with its guard, which consisted of over 800 infantry and a small body of cavalry, all under Colonel Snyder. 
the guard for the train broke and ran to the mountains, and only a few prisoners were captured. Rosser's loss in killed and wounded was about 25, and the enemy's much heavier. 93 loaded wagons were captured, but the teams from 42 of them were run off by the drivers during the fight, and being considerably smashed, these wagons were burnt. 50 wagons with their teams were brought off, one having been overturned in the night and broken to pieces, so as to be useless. The wagons were loaded with commissary stores and forage, but as the wagons crossed the mountain from Patterson's Creek to Moorfield in the night, a great deal of the loading was thrown down by their drivers, and much of it was plundered before steps could be taken to secure it. After the train was captured, Rosser moved toward Petersburg and got possession of the roads from Petersburg down Patterson's Creek through Greenland Gap, and the same evening Thomas's brigade arrived at Moorfield and was crossed over to the South Branch to within 10 miles of Petersburg. Early next morning, both forces moved upon Petersburg, but on arriving, it was found that the enemy had evacuated during the night, taking a mountain road to the head of New Creek through a pass where it was impractical to follow him, especially as there was a dense fog, rendering it difficult to discern objects at a short distance. The works at Petersburg were found to be very strong, with a ditch around them and very strong abatis. There were large, bomb-proof shelters, and appearances indicated that a good deal of work had been done lately. The works were destroyed as far as practicable, and some commissary stores and forage and about 13,000 cartridges were secured. Thomas's brigade was then marched back to Moorfield, and Rosser was sent down Parisons Creek to collect cattle and cut the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad. He reached the road on the 2nd at the mouth of Parisons Creek and destroyed the bridge over that creek, and partially destroyed the bridge over the north branch of the Potomac. He also destroyed another bridge over the canal and a lock of the canal itself. In the meantime, a considerable cavalry force had made its appearance at Romney, and Rosser returned to Moorfield, which place he reached on the 3rd with a number of cattle and sheep. McNeil crossed over to the eastern ridge of the Allegheny and brought off over 300 cattle. Now just as a brief aside, despite there being some confusion about whether these reports were from a later raid than this raid that we had in early 1864, the presence of McNeil would indicate that it would probably at least be up until October of 1864 because he does, that that's when he actually dies. So obviously if he is present, then it's more likely that it would have been this earlier raid. Although, like I said, sometimes these dates don't necessarily line up with the events that are depicted in the stories. After Rosser's return, I gave orders for the troops and trains to start back early next morning, as we had accomplished all than we could, and accordingly everything but the cavalry was in motion very soon. And after Thomas's brigade had gone about four miles from Moorfield, a considerable force of the enemy's cavalry, with some artillery, made its appearance below Moorfield on the road from Romney. I ordered Thomas's brigade to be brought back toward Moorfield, and Rosser to retire through Moorfield, and taking a position on the south fork of the north branch, I awaited the approach of the enemy until after 12 o'clock, when, he showing no disposition to attack, but contenting himself with maneuvering very cautiously, and Rosser's cavalry being too much reduced in numbers to attack the enemy's cavalry, which was in view, and largely exceeded his own numbers. I resumed my march back without molestation from the enemy crossing over to Lost River that night, and the next day to this valley. 
A large portion of the cavalry force which appeared at Moorfield went from Martinsburg and Charlestown, a brigade under Colonel Fish having lately been sent to the Lower Valley. should also point out, I think maybe I've done this in previous episodes, but the Lower Valley would actually be the northern part of the valley. It's kind of confusing. It's a little bit backwards. I've been informed that a force of infantry was following the cavalry, but I'm not certain of this. I do not think it prudent to leave the trains and cattle to the risk of capture or while I was being amused by cavalry at Moorfield, and I therefore moved back, according to my original purpose. We brought off the 50 captured wagons with their teams, 1,200 cattle, 500 sheep, 78 prisoners, which were one major, three captains, and 74 enlisted men, and some commissary stores. We got all the cattle we could. Many persons ran off their cattle to Maryland, and a number of those brought off will not answer for beef at present. We could have got as many sheep as we wanted, but they could not be driven. We found the people of Moorfield and the adjoining valley very true to our cause, and exceedingly kind and hospitable to our men. I think the enemy will hardly occupy Petersburg again. And if he does not, as soon as things get quiet, some more cattle can be gotten. So here we go from uh, General Rosser himself. On the morning of the 28th, in obedience to an order from Major General Jubal Early, I moved my brigade in a battery of four pieces of General Imbodens in the direction of Moorfield, Hardy County, where I arrived early on the evening of the 30th. The infantry having failed to get up, I spent the remainder of the day in constructing bridges across the south and north forks of the south branch, and early on the morning of the 31st, moved my command across the mountain in the direction of Patterson's Creek, upon which I had been informed by a reliable scout was a large supply train of the enemy camped destined for Petersburg. In crossing the mountain, I encountered when in about two of the creek, a regiment of infantry blockading the road by felling trees across it, and by digging it away when constructed upon the side of a hill. By dismounting a few men, I soon dislodged them, and drove them entirely from the gap. The obstructions were soon removed by the pioneers of the brigade, and the road reconstructed where it had been dug away. The brigade then fairly threw. I pressed vigorously upon the enemy, who was then retiring in the direction of Williamsport to meet the train, which was then moving up. Upon my approach, his wagons were parked and all dispositions made to meet my attack. The enemy's force, I have since learned, numbered a thousand men. I saw at a glance, was much larger than my own. I dismounted 300 or 400 men, and with the remainder in the saddle, I charged him front, flank, and rear. The first onset was repulsed, but one piece of my artillery coming up, the enemy having none. My troop were much elated by seeming advantage, and I charged him again, which was very successful, driving him into the mountains and giving me possession of the entire train of 95 wagons and teams, excepting a few of the latter that were cut away during the fight and run off, and the regiment I sent to occupy the road in the rear of the train failing to get up in time. These mules and a few ambulances were allowed to escape. The conduct of my men on this occasion entails them to their country gratitude. Indeed, I believe at the first instance during this war where cavalry attacked successfully a superior force of infantry. Lost in the action, 24 men killed and wounded. The enemy acknowledged loss in killed and wounded was 80. I captured 40 prisoners, two captains, and one major. The train, which was heavily loaded with commissary stores, was turned over to General Early. Many of the wagons, however, had to be destroyed in consequence of the one of mules to bring them off a number having been killed in the action, and others ridden off by the fleeing enemy. 
on the morning of the 1st, I moved into Petersburg, the enemy having escaped on one of the back roads, which it was impossible for me to guard with a smaller force. The enemy in evacuating this place left off all his big baggage and a large supply of provisions, which fell into the hands of my men. From this place, I proceeded in obedience to instructions from General Early down Patterson's Creek with the view of driving out the cattle, and for this purpose I sent Major Gilmore and Captain McNeil's commands, under the command of the latter, into the Allegheny Mountains and placed one regiment in Mechanicsville Gap to prevent Averill, whom I expected from Martinsburg, from getting between me and General Early. So here you go, you also have William Wing Averill in the area, and they know just how aggressive a cavalry commander he is. I then pressed down to the creek in its mouth, at which place there was a guard of one company, which I captured, and I destroyed here the railroad bridges across Patterson's Creek, the Potomac, and Canal. I also destroyed one engine, all the property belonging to the road, the bridge for the pike across the canal, and one canal lock. Learning that the enemy was in Romney in considerable force, and that he was struggling for the gap at which my regiment was posted, I abandoned the idea of going to Cumberland and turned back in direction of Moorfield, evading the enemy who had forced the gap and gone to my rear, and brought out safely all my prisoners and cattle. Upon the expedition, I captured 1,200 or 1,300 head of cattle, 500 or 600 sheep, 95 wagons, and 80 prisoners. Only 50 of the wagons were saved and brought to the valley. Everything else is now safe in the valley. So, once again, a couple of things. We mentioned Romney, and that city does change hands several times during the war. In fact, some would say, in some sources, that it changes hands the most times during the war, because, you know, anytime anyway rides into town... That counts as changing hands, I suppose. And you kind of see how in these various reports, where it's Early and Rosser and then Lee writes in his report, all these numbers are just kind of fluctuating, right? And that's how you're going to get errors in, in certain situations. So it's just kind of interesting to see when you're reading these different things, how it's just slightly different in certain cases. And in the case of Rosser, he's also here providing some excuses, right? You kind of get a little bit of that tone where he's like, ah, I could have had a regiment go and cut them off so that they wouldn't have been able to escape, but my force was too small, right? So you get that kind of like, I did win this great victory, but the contradiction of I could have had a bigger victory, I'm going to make sure I squash that. Let's just focus on the big victory that I had. So here we have another report. The late affair in Hardy County, fuller particulars of the capture of the Yankee wagon train. We have already noticed the capture of a Yankee wagon train by General Rosser's command. This capture was effected on Sunday week at Williamsport, Hardy County, which is on the turn fight between Petersburg and Burlington. A soldier who participated in the affair states that our forces were captured 110 wagons between 300 and 100 miles, probably mules actually here they say miles uh, maybe it's just a little typo there about 20 prisoners one of whom is a yankee major and some 60 head of cattle the wagons were loaded with coffee sugar molasses pickled pork and corn and oats 65 of the wagons heavily loaded with the articles above mentioned were safely brought off at the time he attacked the train it was guarded by about 800 infantry who made a slight show of resistance but were soon driven off to the mountains in the fight we lost three killed and eight wounded of the killed, one belonged to the 11th Virginia Cavalry and two to the 12th. Lieutenant Howell of the 7th Cavalry lost an arm. The following official dispatch with reference to the affair was received at the War Department on Saturday. 
to General S. Cooper. And I'm not actually going to read through this because it's essentially verbatim what Robert E. Lee wrote. And that might actually have been the dispatch that Cooper gets. He actually gets it from Lee, so I'm not going to actually read that again. But you see, get a good idea through these, the kinds of reports out there from officers, from, shall we say, correspondents and newspapers. And again, so it, it is always, I think, a good idea to look into what's actually being written. And if you were a contemporary at the time, well, you would be reading about these events. So once again, we'll talk a little bit about 1863. Vicksburg, Gettysburg, Chattanooga, these were essentially the big three, the big outcomes of the year. The Mississippi would not be easygoing, but Lincoln would be satisfied in saying it flowed unvexed to the sea. This would cut the rebels off from Texas and supply from that region, which we mentioned is actually pretty significant because you have potentially French assistance trying to get through the border into Texas and then from Texas you could take the Red River to Vicksburg and the Mississippi and then you could distribute it essentially to the rest of the Confederacy. Lee would rebuild his army following Gettysburg, ready to fight a more defensive war. Even though Bragg had bungled things, Joseph E. Johnson still has a pretty decently sized force. While the gateway into the interior now lay open, it was not going to be yet a foregone conclusion. Atlanta would be a tough nut to crack, and Davis would put a lot of emphasis in trying to hold this key industrial and logistical center. Forrest will head to Mississippi to cause trouble there, and Kirby Smith will be doing everything he can to stem the tide in the Trans-Mississippi. Even Sterling Price will launch a dash into Missouri, trying to take that state back for the Confederacy. Although, by the time he does it, it's a little too late. You kind of always get the impression that Sterling Price is wanting to launch something into Missouri. The Confederacy, especially the Confederate government, right? They're going to realize that there's going to be not a whole lot to be gained out of getting back into Missouri. We mentioned how there was unconventional warfare going on there, and there were a lot of individuals who were taking the oath who were being forced to join militia units. They're not necessarily on the side of the Union, that's for sure, but they also don't necessarily want to fight for the Confederacy either. We mentioned how Banks was being a tad disappointing to the folks in Washington, but he did create a military presence that would not be undone in Texas. The U.S. Navy has continued in their domination, and that really is not going to change concerning the ability to produce what would become the largest navy in the world by the war's end. Federal morale would be gaining, especially in the realm of cavalry. Federal horsemen had not been looking comparable with their great counterparts early in the war. There had been some strides made in the east and west that would put the cavalry wings more on par. Repeating weapons, at the very least amongst this mounted arm, have shown a technological advantage that the Confederacy will be unable to match although they would experiment with trying to produce their own weapons of this type. Additionally, there is a confidence boost amongst the Army of the Potomac in the East. Gettysburg, while maybe not the end-all be-all of the war, does show that Robert E. Lee is beatable, something that hadn't really happened up to that point, suffering a true defeat. 
There had been a setback in the armies of the West at Chickamauga, but confidence was restored at Chattanooga. The army had not been beaten up until that point, so accustomed to winning. Grant's army likewise was high in confidence, important for the veteran troops if they were going to consolidate gains and hopefully move into Georgia and the Confederate interior. But that leads us to exactly what's going to be the strategy of both sides heading into 1864. For the Confederacy, it's going to be much the same. This old strategy, though, of trying to hold on to the southern territory is not going well. Large parts of the south are under federal control, and probing armies are going to be on alert to create mischief. Despite the growing unpopularity of the war, the rebel strategy is going to shift to prolonging the conflict. Realistically, foreign intervention is off the table, but intervention from within and a regime change is a real possibility. People in the north are just as fed up with the conflict as the south. Would they be able to just let the people of the south go in a trade for a peaceful, bloodless conclusion? Davis and the Confederacy would have to see. For the Union, the continued thrust into Confederate infrastructure is going to be on the table. Resource advantages have become obvious, and the shifting of rebel forces show that if multiple pressure points are applied, then there can be a real advantage attained somewhere. Grant is going to be a believer of multiple offensives that will hopefully tear up the rebels. Additionally, the raids from figures like Grierson and Averill have shown that once into the Confederate interior, then real damage can be done. Soft-shell defenses would not be a match when compared to strong and fast strikes. So, continuing to destroy any resources that would help the war effort and begin the slow strangling process of the Confederacy, aka remember the Anaconda Plan, would be the name of the game moving forward. So, I'm going to go ahead and leave you with that. We kind of talked a little bit about Thomas Rosser's raid and the kind of dispatches and reports that you would get if you were a contemporary of the time. Obviously, any kind of capture in terms of supplies and wagons is going to be big for the Confederacy. We had a little bit of a continued recap, shall we say, of 1863, and then turned the corner into a preview of 1864 as well. Next week, we're going to get into a skirmish at Grand Gulf, as well as heading back to Tennessee. And then we're actually going to also cover some world events of 1864, much in the same way that we did with 62 and 63. If you like what you hear, please make sure to leave a review. Posted in the description should be a link to the website, Patreon, as well as Venmo information. Support for the general upkeep of the show is greatly appreciated. Feedback is always welcome. Questions, comments, concerns, the email is cwweeklypod at gmail.com. Thank you all so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>